You're listening to Campus Review Radio. Phil Ruthven has devoted his life to economic and social predictions. Now he's turned his attention to children. Hi, it's Lauren, education editor here, and I spoke to Phil about his new book about Australian children, teenagers and young adults' futures. I'm interested in knowing why you decided to write a book about children's futures at this particular point in time. Uh, I've written this book for a number of reasons. Uh, One is that I do have three sons and eight grandchildren, and I've had a, a fortunate life in the sense of being involved with a lot of information about both economics and society in in my work. And I did want to leave some sort of a legacy, but not only for my own descendants, but mainly uh, for both adults and children, whether they be at school or universities, to in a sense, do three things for them, to give them much better perspective than I think we tend to get from most media today. I also wanted to be able to give people composure about the future um, because people worry a lot and always have done perhaps throughout history, but they worry a lot even today. And thirdly, I wanted to provide optimism to people and their their descendants about where where the world is going. So those three things I, I have set out to try and do in this book uh, in a fairly comprehensive way because I think most books about the future and where we're going tend to be focused on one or two narrow areas and they may be tackled very well. What I tried to do was to make a much more comprehensive analysis of where we've been, where we are and where we're going and to cover pretty well everything that uh, is to do with our lives, uh, be it in the form of um, our life expectancy or the jobs for the future or health or crime and uh, in fact I ended up writing 18 chapters uh, covering the sort of key issues that I think we we would like to know when we're thinking about the future. So can you tell me, uh, first of all, what generation you're focusing on? It's, it certainly would include the millennials, and but it does include, of course, the, the generation Z, which are those aged between about 16 uh, uh, and below. And so how, how far into the future are you looking in this book? Uh, some of it goes through to the middle of this century and beyond, Uh, For example, when I talk about the ethnicity of Australia, in other words, the sort of cultures that we're going to have, I actually do make some comments almost into the next century, in other words, the 22nd century. And I do that because, uh, in a way, this particular century is unusual in that uh, it's the first century in which we have started to really lock ourselves into the Asian area because for the previous centuries, um, certainly under European settlement, we were locked more into the European uh, economy and cultures and locked into perhaps the American cultures uh, and economy as well. Whereas in this century, we're locking ourselves into Asia 
And already, given that uh, two-thirds of our immigrants into Australia are coming from Asia rather than from Europe or elsewhere, it's very clear that our ethnicity is going to very slowly change, almost osmotically, uh, over a long period of time. So in that area, I tried to introduce some composure into what is often a very uh, scary topic, and that is what will we look like and uh, will we be overrun by uh, new cultures, etc. And I've tried to uh, create composure in that regard. And to do that, I've even looked out over the next five or six generations to show how we're going to be changing very slowly and progressively uh, into a more Eurasian uh, culture. So that that's a case where I've gone very, very long term. In other areas, I've very rarely have I looked at anything less than five or ten years into the future. In other words, given people a much more longer perspective than they would normally tend to take in their daily lives. Somebody once said that um, a year is almost long-term planning for most human beings because they think about when Johnny's going to start school or where do we take the next holiday, do we change homes or do we buy a new car. A year is a long time in life for a person quite often. Um, and that really is why, uh, in a sense, fear sets into families because uh, they, they're a bit scared to look beyond that. And uh, I've tried to introduce a lot more optimism and composure into the long-term future by, first of all, showing how easy or easy it is, but not perfectly possible, to look into the long-term future and, secondly, show that uh, life is getting better, not worse. Um, because I very occasionally run into people who are young marrieds who say, oh, no, I'm not going to have any children. You couldn't bring children into the world of tomorrow. And I always feel saddened by that because history shows that uh, life is getting better, not worse, all the time. And there's always new fears to worry about. But um, when you look at our rising standard of living, our longer life expectancy, falling crime rates, uh, there's an awful lot of optimism out there, or justification for optimism rather than fear. So before we get into the specifics, can you tell me what the book is based on? Is it just based on big data or is it also uh, based on other things? It's mostly based on what I'd call big data because uh, in a sense, um, my own experience with my own company over the last almost 50 years has been that um, opinions as a source of information are often misleading, uh, they're often incorrect, uh, and they're often not very representative of, uh, of the total environment. So, um, in fact, in the very early days of my own company, I began what was probably one of the first consumer research uh, organisations in Australia with about 90 staff. And I stopped doing that uh, within four years because I was so disillusioned um, Within, within the incorrectness, really, of the responses we were getting. Uh, not that people were telling lies, they just didn't know what they were doing. Um, and I thought, no, we've got to be, there's got to be a better way to do this. So the book is based much more on data and fact. And throughout my own career, I've found it much better not to start with a theory about something and then try and prove it, but go and look at the facts and the data, the big data in particular, and say, what is it telling us about the past, the present, and the probable future? So this may well be the most fact-based, thorough uh, research 
into the 18 topics that I've uh, written about that, that may have ever been produced in Australia, and if not the world, I would venture to say too, because we are a very, very intensive data, internationally intensive data company that, uh, that I own. So getting into the findings, uh, you say that there are both challenges that this next generation will face as well as uh, things that are better than they were previously. So yes. I thought we could start with the negative. <laughs> uh, can you talk me through the key challenges that they will face? Yes, happy to do that. I think that um, the areas which I think are still very problematic for people are things like crimes and the drug scene, uh, because that terrifies parents uh, and it uh, can terrify the young people as well when they see some of their their colleagues sort of going down the drain in terms of uh, drug abuse or whatever. Um, so uh, I think one of the great challenges is to be able to uh, minimise both the damage we're doing to ourselves and the damage that comes from crime. And and I do suggest uh, the, the, the best ways to tackle that uh, for example, in the case of, of crime, it's um, the best way to protect oneself is prevention, uh, of course, in the case of crime, because it's very, very difficult to reduce uh, potential crime rates, whether it be uh, things like um, severe assaults or burglary or theft. Although that said, uh, there's no doubt that better protection of homes, um, the protection of cars using that sort of dot point technology is meant that we've seen a dramatic reduction in the number of burglaries and, and car thefts, for example, in Australia. In the case of drugs, I think that we've been tackling it the wrong way, and I think most experts around the world agree that uh, the dr damage we're doing with the drug scene for human beings is by, uh, in a sense, prohibition. And we never seem to learn the lessons of history, but uh, in America, of course, with prohibition of alcohol, it led to more crime, murders, deaths and destruction than ever occurred uh, in the days before Prohibition. And to some extent, we're making exactly the same mistake again. And I think most enlightened people would see that we do need to, if you like, um, decriminalise the drug scene and uh, to make a, a legalised proposition where we can actually control it to the extent that we don't control at the present time. So I think that's one of the fearful areas the other fearful areas, I think, for a lot of people are in the area of jobs. Um, there's a feeling out there uh, that there just will not be enough jobs uh, around in the future because of robots and because of mechanisation and all sorts of things. And uh, I can disprove that worry very, very quickly because, for example, just over the last five years, we've created more than six times more new jobs than we've actually lost. And that's unlikely to change almost for the rest of the century. So the fear that we will not have enough jobs is not true. And ironically, the other thing that we often fear is things uh, like we're going to run out of workers because we're all going to be too old. And of course, in the book, I show that that's just simply not true either because we assume that people will stop working at the age of 60 or 65. And well, of course, that's simply not going to happen because uh, we're going to be living to 100 if you're a millennial. Uh, and uh, and being able to work even part-time up to the age of 90 is probably going to be a very interesting thing to do, not just monetarily, but I think also because of, uh, of your own feeling of, of contribution and self-esteem. 
Um, I think another area which worries people is things like uh, relationships, marriages and divorces. And again, facts ruin a good story, as I try to use in this book by pointing out that marriages have been lasting the same length of time pretty well for the last 300 years, both here in Australia and England, and that is around about 20 years. It's never got longer, it's never got shorter. So the idea that marriages don't last any longer is just one of those sort of... uh, uh, fallacies that uh, just don't stand up. It's, just, it's just a nonsense. The other thing that people say, oh yes, but divorce is rising. Well, no, it's not. It, it's actually been falling for the last 40 years. Uh, there's far fewer divorces now than there were 40 years ago. Uh, and if you're going to have a divorce, it now occurs much, much later in, in, in your marriage than it ever did before. So uh, these are just some examples of the sort of uh, challenges and fears that people have got that I, I try to uh, assuage, if I can use that term. It's a good term. <laughs> uh, so moving on to the positives, what are some things that young people can look forward to? I think the first and most obvious one is, of course, a longer life. Um, and it's quite sobering to realise that if we only went back 200 years ago, say the year 1800, life expectancy for a man and or a woman was both the same and it was 38 years of age. Now, of course, some people live much longer than that and some much shorter, but the average was 38. And today, it's nearer to 82 years of age. And uh, before the end of the century, the average is probably going to creep up fairly close to uh, to probably 90 or 100. So I think the first good news is we're going to live longer. I think, secondly, that we're going to be working less hours per year, and that's been a pattern all the way back to around about the year 1816. In those days, we used to work a 65-hour week uh, with no holidays and, uh, and and only two public holidays a year, I think. Um, these days, we don't work a 65-hour week. The average is actually down to about 28 because we forget, for example, that um, we have almost two months off a year being a month's holiday, uh, two weeks uh, public holidays because there's 10 of those, and then there's uh, two weeks sick leave. So for two months a year, you don't work at all. Uh, and then there's uh, about a third of the workforce is now part-time. So when you look at a lifetime of work, uh, our, our average uh, week has come down to about 28 hours from 65, and that's going to fall down to about 20 hours by the end of the century. So we work will not be the, the, the trudge that it was you know, for so many of our forebears. Uh, I think there's going to be more people will turn up to work with a smile on their face uh, and happy to be doing what they're doing. Uh, than than today, let alone yesteryear. So uh, I, I think that's you know just just a couple of very uh, quick ones. I think the other thing is that I think we're going to be living more pain-free lives as well as a long life, because I think the advances in medical science uh, is simply astonishing at the present time. And it's interesting to go into hospital when we have to do that these days to find that there are signs all over the ward saying. Our first job is to make sure you are not in pain. Now, I'm old enough to remember when that sign didn't exist anywhere in hospitals. You had to grin and bear it. Uh, So that uh, the whole idea of having less pain throughout our lives is also a huge plus. Um, I think the drudgery is going to go out of life too because we've been moving into an era where we're outsourcing a lot of the boring things that we don't like doing at home or even at work. Uh, through outsourcing, and uh, and that's continuing to grow through this century so that, in a sense, I think we're going to have more time for both thinking, debating, talking, enjoying each other's company, travelling, holidays, 
than any generation in history. So uh, there's an awful lot to look forward to. And in the description of your book, it says that hopefully the hard stuff won't be as debilitating as it was in the past. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. For example, um, some of the hard stuff that I do talk about uh, uh, is um, is crime, where we only had, only had to go back to the year 2000, um, which is only 18 years ago, to find that there was about a million or 1.1 million crimes committed in Australia each year that warranted a jail sentence. Now, in those in that particular time, uh, only one in a hundred of those crimes were ever caught and the person went to jail. So that 99 out of 100 crimes were never punished, if I can put it that way. Not that I'm saying jail is always the best punishment anyway, and I think we've learned to know there's better ways sometimes than that. But, but for 99 out of every 100 crimes to really have gone off scot-free almost suggests that... Um, it was never true to say that crime doesn't pay because clearly it did. It never made people happy by committing a crime because often the reasons they were doing it were either for money, uh, to feed a family sometimes, or to get drugs or something horrible. But um, these days, as I say, the crime rate's fallen quite dramatically. So uh, the hard stuff is coming off from what was a pretty frightening picture uh, as recently as two decades ago. I think the other thing is wars and, and terrorism. Um, we we see talk of terrorism almost daily in the paper today, but when we think about the number of people that are actually killed through terrorism, compared to all the wars we had in the last century, uh, of the 20th century, um, there's very, very tiny proportions of the population are actually ever in danger of their life through terrorism. And... Um, so wars and terrorism aren't anything like as bad as they were for most of the 20th century. Many people would realise that for nine out of ten decades in that last century, Australia went to war to defend other people, including ourselves in two of the wars, of course, and particularly World War II. But um, we were a country that just saw wars as almost uh, a regular occurrence. Which leads to the other thing that I think uh, the hard stuff is going to, and that is depressions. We haven't had a depression now since the 1930s, and that's uh, almost 90 years ago. And even recessions uh, are much less than they used to be. Um, we, uh, we used to have recessions about every four years up until the mid-1960s, and that was a period what we call the Industrial Age. Since the Industrial Age ended in 1960-65 or thereabouts, and we entered this new age uh, where the economy is dominated by services, um, we've really only had uh, two recessions, and um, well, three perhaps, maybe, but two is probably all we've had. So that even recessions, which last for one year, is distinct from a depression, which normally lasts from two to four years, we, we really don't have depressions anymore, and we really uh, have very rarely ever have a recession. So some of that hard stuff has, uh, has been going as well. So... Uh, again, I think that it's only by looking throughout, back over history and where we are today that you can start to be thankful for the world we're in rather than fearful of it. Some argue that the world is changing more rapidly than ever before. So if you believe that statement, how can you prepare for a future that might be different from one year to the next? 
I think we have entered the age of, of information that, and that is coming to the aid of the party, if I can put it that way, when it comes to taking away some of the, the fear of what's going to happen. Um, and it's not only big data that's coming through uh, to help us with that. Uh, that's most obvious, perhaps, even in the in the medical area, where up until only a few decades ago, really our medical uh, industry didn't really use much big data to find out the cause and cures of things to the extent that we now know. Uh, DNA wasn't known about, of course, and, or broken down into uh, into its components like we now know. So that, um, in a sense, um, big data coupled with what we call artificial intelligence, uh, which is moving towards uh, the intelligence of human beings, and we often call that cognitive or thinking software that's uh, developed. When you've got things like uh, the Watson computer developed by IBM, which can now outdo uh, you know the best quiz contestants in the world, we're moving into an age where data and information is being made into uh, into almost wisdom as we as we move through this century, and I think that's going to come to the aid of the party, as I said, for human beings uh, that can take the fear out of things. Um, the other thing that's going to do is that certainly by the end of this century, I think that almost 90% of all the decisions and things we, we make each day, unconsciously or consciously, will probably have been almost mechanised um, to the extent that um, just like we get used to driving a car to work sometimes these days and hardly even noticing that we're doing it because it's almost semi-automatic, uh, so many things are going to change uh, and, and, and in the way of many robots and information and whatever that uh, I really do think that uh, the, this age of information, which scares some people a lot, particularly social um, media, of course, which uh, is a lot of scuttlebutt and, uh, and uh, fake news and all sorts of things as well, and often very, very short-term and opinionated. But I think we're going to see rationality, big data, uh, process big data into, into wisdom, uh, really start to take a lot of fears out of, uh, out of human lives. The only thing that people will still worry about is, well, are the robots going to be more intelligent than humans? Well, of course they are. But that doesn't mean they're going to control our lives. It means that uh, it's nice to have a very intelligent offsider, whether it's in the form of a watch on your wrist or implanting your skin or whatever form it takes. Uh, it's going to be very nice to have somebody super intelligent uh, helping you through your life. So uh, I think that's something that um, really is going to slowly take out a lot of the fears that we, we currently have. It's going to get rid of a lot of the old scuttlebutt fake news and all that sort of rubbish that I think we're plagued with at the present time because of social media, and I think because of a lot of lying politicians around the world, um, that rationality is going to win over what I might call popperism. Uh, it's going to be quite a battle over the next decade or so, but rationality and, and wisdom is going to win out in the end, and that's going to make our lives a lot better. What do you think educators can do to prepare today's kids for the future? Well, I think a teacher... Uh, Pedagogists would say that teaching has three elements to it. Uh, one is being a surrogate parent, if you're uh, teaching kids that are under 18, of course, because they're not adults, and that therefore applies to primary school and most of secondary school as well, but not universities because they're adults by the time they go there. So a teacher's got a role, uh, certainly in schools, of being a surrogate parent. 
Their second role, I think, is uh, is information, being able to pass on information to their students. And the third thing, third one is what I might call learning to learn or tutoring. In other words, how to think through processes so that you become equipped uh, to deal with the rest of your life in an intelligent way with information. Now, I think what's happening uh, when you look through, certainly into the uh, tertiary education level, is that surrogacy, of course, is not a is not a role of the teacher. I think if information is no longer much of a role for the teacher either, because you can get that online uh, and much more up to date than normally a teacher will have uh, in his or her head. Meaning that I think perhaps the most important role for a teacher going forward is the mentoring or the learning to learn uh, side of that role of education and. Um, that means I think we're going to see a lot of changes, particularly in primary and secondary schools, where you know the, the, all research is showing that perhaps the biggest mistake we ever made in, in primary and secondary education was to halve the size of uh, of schools. You know, going back 30 years ago, that's now being realised as perhaps one of the most uh, bad mistakes we've ever made because it actually tended to lower the status of a teacher because of wages and all sorts of things. Uh, we had to get a lot of teachers who weren't necessarily vocationally oriented and certainly not very well paid. And uh, with the school today, it'd be much better to have a, a class of 45 students broken up into three lots of 15, where 15 are getting their own information off their own computer, another 15 may be debating things amongst themselves, and the other 15 are being tutored or whatever by the teacher, so that the teacher's load doesn't necessarily become uh, overloaded uh, and it certainly in that way enables us to pay our teachers a lot more money than we're paying them now so that we can reward the best teachers we can possibly get. Uh, so um, in that sense, I think the role of a teacher is going to change quite fundamentally for primary and secondary schools going forward. And for universities, of course, I mean, the, the online revolution is, is introducing a whole new um, deal, I suppose, into tertiary education. And... Uh, I think, again, technology, particularly when it comes to things like um, the capacity to do uh, virtual classrooms, um, is going to mean that we're, going to, we're literally seeing a revolution take place in universities. And I think the next really exciting cycle in universities is going to start around about the year 2022, um, uh, 2022 or thereabouts, 23. But we're not far off seeing perhaps the the greatest technological and systems change in university education we've seen in probably 700 years. So I think it's going to be a very, very exciting period. Is there anything else that I've missed out on that you think is really important to include? Perhaps if I had one or two things, I would add, first of all, that um, I think the nature of employment is changing very, very subtly. Uh, but very dramatically if one looks at it over a longer period of time. For example, I think we, with our 12.5 million workers this year in Australia, we tend to think of them as employees. But I would think by the middle of the century or not long after, um, the term employee is not going to be uh, as popular a term as we now accept it to be. In fact, um, we might even find that... um, Children around about the year 2060 might be saying to their grandparents or grandfather, oh, Pop, uh, Grandma tells me that you used to be an employee. And he says, yes, I I was, uh, John. Oh, you poor thing, how did you cope? 
In other words, uh, I think the younger generations will see the term employees carrying almost the last vestige of slavery or serfdom in it because we are going to slowly move to a workforce where we give far more esteem and credit to the employee by almost treating them as if they're their own business dealing on a business-to-business basis rather than on a master-servant basis, which it currently is. And there's going to be plenty of new advisory bodies coming forth to be able to uh, help those uh, people that were employees uh, write the sort of contracts that really look after them fairly in terms of money and conditions, give them a a life of one, two, three or four years into the future. So I think there is a revolution coming in the nature of work which uh, scares the older generations out there at the present time like baby boomers and the older ones. But for the younger ones, particularly the millennials and the Gen Zs coming behind them, uh, they're going to say, yep, I like that. In fact, my company worldwide uh, really does treat all of uh, our workers or staff as if they are businesses in their own right, and we try to give them that respect from day one. Uh, So I think there's a big revolution coming through uh, in that side as well. The other thing that might surprise people, if I had to uh, pick another one, is the whole concept of home ownership. Uh, which has been treated as next to motherhood by older generations. But uh, people say, oh, gosh, they can't afford to buy a home today like they used to. Well, it was never easy to buy a home. My first home I think I bought in 1964. And in those days, you had to actually put down a third deposit with a bank to be able to even get a loan to buy a house. Well, I had no chance of doing that. Of course, nobody did unless your parents helped you, or in my case, the company I worked for helped me do it. and, of course, interest rates were much higher than today in those days, and they got very much higher by the 1990s. So it's never been easy to own a home. But for younger people, I don't think they have the same passion uh, throughout life of wanting to own a home. They certainly don't in their early days before they're married, even in the early days of marriages. And by the time they're retiring, they're probably quite happy going to retirement villages um, without necessarily owning them. So I think the whole question of home ownership is going to go through a change as well. And um, this this sort of almost stigma that says if you don't own a home, then you haven't made it, I think it's going to go. Uh, in other words, I think that sense of security can be replaced by other forms of security, like we see in other countries like Europe and America, where you can lease a home for 10 years if you like, so why would you bother owning it? You're not going to be thrown out every six months, you know, like the rental days that we, we're still getting over here in Australia. Overseas, they've gone far more advanced than that by having long-term leases so that you have all the security in the world and tenure without having to have the fear that goes with it. So they're just two of the things I think are going to uh, change and I think ultimately, funnily enough, for the better, even though some older people might not agree with either of those things.